You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. As I mentioned a couple weeks ago, I've, uh, through meditation and prayer, discerned that the Lord wanted me to preach these three sermons in the book of 1 John as we continue our Christmas celebrations. Now, there are many metaphors that we can use to describe the gospel. You could say that the gospel is like a house with many rooms. You can enjoy each room for its own unique benefits. Some rooms, you get to meet with other people. Some rooms are nice and cozy around the fireplace. Some rooms are meant for resting. The gospel is all of those things. It is unity and diversity. Some could say that the gospel is like a feast with different flavors and textures for us to enjoy. Uh, A diverse collection of good things for us to eat. Um, all giving us joy, all giving us satisfaction, but none of it all identical. My personal favorite metaphor for the gospel is that the gospel is like a diamond. The gospel is like a diamond. I remember the first time I set my eyes on the diamond. It was when I was shopping for an engagement ring for my wife Nina 11 years ago. I went to a store in Toronto that specialized in diamonds and engagement rings where your experience begins with a sit-down interview with their resident diamond expert. And this resident diamond expert told me that when you're looking for a diamond, you don't, just, you don't just look for size. And we talk about, oh, this diamond is X amount of carats. You don't just look at how sparkly it is. You have to look at, well, men, if you've proposed to your fiance or to your wife, you know what we're talking about. You look for the four C's. Color, clarity, cut, and carrot. It's catchy, isn't it? It's a fifth C, catchy. The lesson was that you could have a big diamond, but if it wasn't cut right, or if it didn't have a high color or clarity rating, then it actually wasn't worth very much. And more, more importantly, it wouldn't be nearly as beautiful as a diamond that had high ratings in all four categories. Well, after having this conversation and providing him with a ballpark of my budget, the diamond expert went into a back room, and he returned with a black box. That box was closed, and it remained closed until he, he sat under a special light, and that special light was shining on this black box, and to this day, I haven't forgotten what I felt when he opened that black box under that special light. This tiny little diamond, because that is all I could afford as a student, it took my breath away, because it, it didn't just sparkle. It looked like it was alive. That's the amazing thing about diamonds. If you hold one up in a dimly lit room like this, it won't look very impressive, but when you shine light upon it, it comes alive with beauty and with color. 
Every angle you could say is a new experience. In fact, to to prepare for this illustration, I, I took out my wife's engagement ring and I just held it up to the sunlight and I just turned it and, I, and I, I saw how, at one angle, it looked like it was, it was blue and, and, and green sparkles. And another angle, it was red and gold. And sometimes it looked like the, the colors were inside the diamond. Other times, they, they bounced out and, and seemed like they couldn't be contained within this diamond. You never get tired of looking at a diamond because every view of it brings unique beauty. Well, the same is true of the gospel. One view of the gospel isn't enough. You have to see it from multiple angles because each angle reveals something uniquely beautiful and marvelous about what God has done to save us through Jesus Christ. And if the gospel is the diamond, then preaching that is empowered by the illumination of the spirit is like the light that shines on the gospel that we could uh, behold its true beauty and value. And so that, that is my goal every time I preach. It is to turn the diamond for you by preaching the word in the Spirit's illumination so that you would once again marvel at the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ. What we've done during this Advent season is we've turned the diamond of the gospel to focus on the incarnation, the the coming of Christ into the world. And what we are beginning to see is that the incarnation itself has multiple facets. You can, you can have big turns of the diamond and then you can have little minuscule turns of the diamond. We can say that Christ came into the world to save us from our sins. We can say that Christ came into the world to give us eternal life. We can say that Christ came into the world to show us God's love. We can say that Christ came into the world to sympathize with our weaknesses. And today I want to turn the diamond a little more and focus on a facet of the incarnation that does not receive much attention. It is the glorious truth that Christ came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. Christ came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. That is the centerpiece of our text today. In chapter three, verse eight, John writes, the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. My brothers and sisters, Christmas wasn't just an act of mercy. It wasn't just an act of generosity. It wasn't just an act of love. Christmas was an act of war. Not against us, but against the devil. And if we are to understand the true meaning of Christmas, if we are to see the full beauty of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, we must not miss this glorious reality that the reason the Son of God has appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. With that said, let us begin reading our sermon text today, 1 John chapter 3, Verses four to 10. This is the word of the Lord. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, 
as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The title of this sermon is Christmas and Spiritual Warfare. Christmas and Spiritual Warfare. We're gonna have three points today. First, understanding the works of the devil. Second, destroying the works of the devil. And third, freedom from the works of the devil. First, understanding the works of the devil. What is John referring to when he talks about the works of the devil? When we might consider this in the abstract, apart from this text, we might assume that he's talking about worldly institutions or ways of worldly thinking that exist outside of the local church and outside of the lives of believers. And that's no doubt true. In fact, the Apostle Paul calls the devil the god of this world. And his forces are the rulers, the authorities, and the cosmic powers over this present darkness. The devil is indeed at work in this world, corrupting institutions and spreading the poisoned seed of false teaching. But here in our text, John has a different work of the devil in mind. John's overwhelming emphasis, as you could see as we read this text, is on sin. Not other people's sins, Not the devil's sin, but our sin. My sin, your sin, the personal sins of his readers. In these seven short verses, John uses the word sin or sinning 10 times. And his point is that those who truly know the Lord, those who truly abide in Christ, have been born again, they do not keep sinning. Verse six, he says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Verse eight, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Verse nine, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. And then verse nine, at the end, he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now we must not understand, uh, we must not misunderstand here, uh, John is not advocating for some kind of sinless perfectionism. He's not saying that true Christians will never sin again. He's not even saying that they can go a full day without sinning. In fact, he says in chapter one, verse eight, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him, that is God, a liar and his word is not in us. And so John isn't saying that true Christians will never sin again, but he is saying that true Christians will not be enslaved to sin. We have some indication of that when he talks about the practice of sinning in verse four, verse eight, and verse nine. In each of those verses, he says, no one makes a practice of sinning who has been born again. Christians don't make a practice of sinning. Instead, they are increasingly free from sin and able to live free from sin in a way that truly honors God. Now, what does this have to do with the devil? Well, it has everything to do with the devil, 
Because as he says in verse eight, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And, and, and then he goes into this centerpiece verse of this text. The reason why the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. In other words, sin is the devil's work. And so if Christ came to, a, came to destroy those works, he came to put an end to our sin. I remember a time when I was a teenager, I was at home, in my parents' home, and I thought I heard what sounded like an evil laugh that no one else in my family heard. And whether I truly heard it or not, the point is that what I felt was the presence of evil. It scared me because it made me feel like evil was close by. What John is telling us is that evil is always close by, whether you feel it or not. Because every time we sin, and every time we are tempted to sin, the devil is at work. Whenever we sin, we are following the one who has been sinning from the beginning. As he says in verse eight, the devil has been sinning from the beginning. What, what is he referring to? What is the beginning? Well, this sin in the beginning could be a reference to Satan's original fall from grace when he was a glorious angel. In fact, the most glorious of God's multitudes of angels which he had created to worship him. And he arrogantly exalted himself and put himself or tried to put himself on the throne of God, believing that he could do a better job at ruling the universe than God. It could be a reference to that. But it's more likely a reference to Satan's temptation of Adam and Eve, not at the beginning of all existence, but the beginning of creation as we know it. You remember when Satan appeared to Adam and Eve in the form of a serpent? And he lied. He sinned by, by lying to them, and he sinned by slandering God's name. God had said, you will surely die if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Satan said what? You will not surely die. For God knows that if you eat of this tree, your eyes will be opened and you shall become like God. From that point on, the devil has been doing the same thing. He makes empty promises about the pleasures of the world. He slanders God's holy name and he leads us into sin. John tells us more about what this means in verse four when he says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. John is telling us something very specific and important about the nature of sin. He says that when we practice sinning, we practice lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. My friends, sin isn't just making mistakes. Sin isn't just doing things that hurt other people. Sin is breaking God's laws. It is lawlessness. That's why God takes sin so seriously. He has created laws to govern our lives for his glory and for our good, but we do not obey. In fact, we refuse to obey. That's what the word lawlessness implies. John's not just talking about these discrete acts of breaking God's laws. He's talking about a way of life, a lawless way of living casting off God's rule and reign so that we can rule over ourselves. 
There is always a connection between the devil and our sin. You know, this cross conference that I mentioned, it's going to be centered on the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer is something that I've meditated on deeply throughout this past year. And when you think about that one part in the middle of the Lord's Prayer, when, he, when Jesus teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus is teaching us that there is always a connection between temptation and evil. We don't just need to be kept from temptation. We need to be delivered from the evil one because he is at work in the midst of our temptations. One thing that we perhaps don't give as much attention to in the writings and the thinking of the the great reformers is their understanding of Satan and his work. You think about the most famous hymn that came out of the Reformation, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. There's such a strong emphasis on Satan and his work in the world. And similarly, John Calvin, in his commentary on 1 John, he writes, wherever Christ puts forth his own power, he puts the devil to flight as well as sin. The devil is more present than we know, but we don't like to talk about that because it either seems too far-fetched or too frightening. For some, it seems far-fetched because after all, don't we live in the age of science? Hasn't modernity abolished all that thinking, all those old wives' tales about uh, an evil spiritual being who is out to get us? I mean, come on, right? But is the devil really that far-fetched? It's striking to me how many irreligious people have some sense of the spiritual. I know a man who describes himself as a secular humanist, That is, he is atheistic in his thinking, and he believes that the point of life is to further human progress. He is a secular humanist. This man is a brilliant lawyer. He's one of the finest of his generations. And he he doesn't believe that God exists, and so he goes about his work and he goes about his life as if he is the ultimate authority. But listen, on, on the weekends, he goes to church, and he sings in the church choir, and he sings sacred music about God. And he told me, Josh, the reason why I do that is because it makes me feel like there is something transcendent in the world. And perhaps there is more to this life than what we see. Well, can you relate to that? Perhaps you're here today and you would describe yourself as spiritual but irreligious. You don't call yourself a Christian, but you believe there's more to life than what we see around us. You, you believe that our existence doesn't end when we die and we are buried six feet underground. Perhaps you even believe in the existence of spiritual beings. So if you're open to the possibility that there are spiritual beings, then why would you not be open to the existence of evil spiritual beings? Perhaps the existence of the devil isn't as far-fetched as you thought. Well, others don't like to think about the devil because it's frightening. Who wants to think about an evil spiritual being that we can't see, that we have no inherent power over, present with us, seeking to harm us? Well, that's what the Bible tells. 1 Peter 5, verse 8, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. 
The Bible also teaches in James chapter four that if we resist the devil, he will flee from you. Why would such a powerful, spiritual, evil being flee from us who are weak, unspiritual beings? What's because of what we see in our text? That the Son of God has appeared. He has appeared to destroy the works of the devil and to cast him away and to free us from his power and presence. He has appeared to release us from the gloomy chains of sin so that we might go forth in freedom to live to the glory of God. Freedom from the lawlessness of sin. The freedom to start living in the goodness and the truth of God's law to God's glory. My friends, that is what we celebrate at Christmas. That this baby born in Bethlehem, he came as a conquering king who would triumph over all the powers of the evil one. But how did he do that? How did his appearance enable him to destroy the works of the devil? And this leads to our second point. Now, if you know your Bible, you already know the big picture answer to this question. It was, of course, by his death that Christ destroyed the works of the devil. It was in the very moment that seemed to be the greatest defeat for God that God, in fact, accomplished his greatest victory. John wrote about that in chapter one, uh, sorry, in chapter two, verse two, when he writes, he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus destroyed the works of the devil by being a propitiation for our sins. What does that mean? Well, to be the propitiation for our sins means that he satisfied the wrath of God against us because of our sinful living. Jesus took our place. He bore our wrath. He substituted himself for us on the cross so that instead of receiving God's justice, we would receive God's favor. Jesus was the object of God's wrath so that we could be the objects of God's mercy. He destroyed the works of the devil by being the propitiation for our sins. But that is actually not the answer John gives us in these verses. He is turning the diamond and choosing to focus not on Christ's substitutionary atonement, but on Christ's sinless humanity. Did you notice that? Verses five to six, he says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Do you follow John's logic here? He says, in him there is no sin, meaning that he has never sinned, not, not even once. And then he says that no one who abides in him, who belongs to him, who, who is in him, who is united to him by faith, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Now this is good news. John's telling us that sinners who abide in the sinless one themselves become sinless. And that is what frees us from the works of the devil. Those who belong to the Savior become like the Savior as he saves them from their sins. Christ didn't just come into the world. He, he came and he lived a sinless life. And this is one of the forgotten aspects of Christmas. 
Jesus didn't just come as a pure and sinless baby. He died as a pure and sinless man. He didn't sin as a toddler when Mary told him to eat his vegetables. He didn't sin as a young boy by stealing his friend's toys. He didn't sin as a young man by selfishly withdrawing and living for himself. He didn't sin as a grown man by lusting after power, prestige, or pleasure. He didn't sin in his mission to destroy sin and to destroy the works of the devil by leaving the path of the cross throughout his entire life. He never sinned, not even once. Not in his words, not in his actions, not in his thoughts, not in his emotions. He was pure in every aspect of his humanity. In him there is no sin, not a spot or a stain that came from a moment of unrighteous anger, that came from a fleeting lustful thought. No sin at all from birth to death. And that is glorious news because if Jesus had sinned, the whole plan of redemption would have fallen apart. It would have failed because he wouldn't have been able to satisfy the demands of the law on our behalf and he wouldn't have been able to die as our substitute on the cross. But because he never sinned, he satisfied the law, he died as our substitute and he destroyed the works of the devil. John doesn't stop there. In verse nine, he says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for, here's the reason, here is what God has done to free us from the practice of sinning and to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Listen, this is Christ's strategy for destroying the works of the devil. He transforms us from the inside out. He doesn't just change our behavior. He changes our very nature by causing us to be born again. We we are in him, the sinless one, and he is in us. Verse six says that we, we abide in him, but verse nine says that he abides in us. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him. God's seed has been planted in God's people by God's spirit so that we are no longer who we used to be. We are born again to new life. A life that is free from slavery to sin and from the works of the devil. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil because we couldn't destroy those works ourselves. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were even willing participants in the devil's domain, but Christ has come. And he didn't come to talk to the devil, to negotiate with the devil, to intimidate the devil. He came to destroy the devil, to show the devil no mercy, and to put a complete end to him and to his works. What the devil builds... Christ destroys. And what the devil destroys, Christ builds up. And that includes all who are in Christ through faith. He builds us up by causing us to be born again. Lastly, what does it look like to live free from the works of the devil? What what does the life of those who are born again, who 
are free from the works of the devil because they have been destroyed. What does that kind of life look like? Our final point. Well, if you know the letter of 1 John, you know that John's primary concern in writing this letter was to answer the difficult question of assurance. Of assurance. How can we know that someone is truly saved? He wanted to give true assurance to people who were truly saved but struggled with doubt. And likewise, he wanted to take away the false assurance of people who weren't truly saved but believed that they were. How can we tell the difference between the two? Well, the answer is in verse 10. It's actually throughout the text, but culminating in verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And so do you want to know if you're a child of God or if you're a child of the devil? Well, then don't, don't just look at your doctrine. You do need to look at your doctrine, yes. Doctrine matters. As we saw a couple weeks ago, the spirit of the Antichrist says that Jesus did not appear in the flesh. That is a doctrinal statement. Doctrine matters, but just as important as looking at your doctrine is looking at your life. Do you practice righteousness? And do you love your brothers? If you do, you are a child of God. If you don't, you are a child of the devil. A life that has been freed from the works of the devil is a life that is characterized by personal righteousness that is expressed through love for others. If you don't care about personal righteousness, you are lying to people without guilt. You are stealing from people without conviction. You are sinfully angry with people without forgiving. Then you don't belong to God. The devil is still at work in you and his power over you has not been broken. Or if you don't love your brother, the context indicates that brother here isn't just random people who happen to be around you. Brother in John's writing refers to fellow believers, those who belong to the household of God and who have become brothers and sisters in Christ. If you do not love your fellow Christians, you cannot say that you are a child of God. If you don't care for the needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ, or if you're removed from the household of God and couldn't care less what happens in local churches, then you have no basis for the assurance of salvation. God's children love God's household, which will include everyone who has been adopted by faith in Christ into God's family. My friends, it is true that Jesus came to take away our guilt, but he also came to take away our lawlessness. He came to change us from the inside out so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him and for his people. He came so that we would actually come to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. This this is the true end of the gospel. The true end of the gospel is not restoring our sense of worth. It's not unburdening our guilty conscience. It's not reassuring us of God's love. Of course, the gospel gives us all those things. But the true end of the gospel is that we would stop sinning. 
We would stop sinning and start doing what honors God as we learn more and more to obey God's law. If we lose sight of this, if we live as if our actions don't matter, then we have no biblical basis to believe that we are God's children. And so to be free from the works of the devil means that we are free increasingly from sin. It doesn't happen overnight, obviously. John tells us it's God's seed that abides in us, and seeds need time to grow. But just as Jesus said, the kingdom of God is like the mustard seed, the smallest of seeds in the garden, but with time it grows up to be the largest plant in the garden and it gives shade to the birds and it bears good fruit. So also the promise of all those who are in Christ is that if God's seed abides in you, it will grow. By the grace of God, by the power of the spirit, that we would be free from sin. John writes in verse seven, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And so do you wanna know if you belong to God? Do you wanna know if you are truly born again and you abide in Christ as God's seed abides in you? Then, Then look at your life. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. A good tree will bear good fruit. And a bad tree will bear bad fruit. Now, if your answer is, Pastor, I am not righteous. I am not loving. And therefore, I must not belong to God. Then my word to you is, friend, don't run away from Christ. Run towards him because it is sinners who know that they are not righteous they are not fulfilling God's law. They are not loving others as they should. It is sinners whom Christ welcomes to himself. He doesn't give new birth to those who deserve it. He gives new birth to those who don't deserve it but know that they need it. Jesus stands ready to give you new life, a life that is characterized by righteousness and love, a life that is free from the devil's work. If you know that you're a sinner, don't run from him, run to him, because you cannot change yourself. You can't give yourself a new heart. You can't cause yourself to be born again spiritually. You you can only be changed by the one who was born in this world, fully God and fully man, who has offered new birth to all who would come to him in faith. And for those who have good reason to be assured of their salvation, and and it is my delight to say many of you have reason to be assured of your salvation because I see, and our church sees, that your life is characterized by personal righteousness and love for others. If, If you have reason to be biblically assured of your salvation, then this Christmas, let us not forget that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Yes, the devil is at work. He's at work when we are tempted. He's at work when we are sinning. But all of his work is in vain when Christ is by our side. What he builds, Christ destroys. And what he destroys, Christ builds up. The devil is at work. But we don't need to be afraid that he is at work because Christ 
has appeared. He has appeared as a sinless baby born of a virgin. He has appeared as a sinless man who conquered every temptation. He has appeared as our sinless substitute who hung on a tree to die for our sins. He has appeared so that the works of the devil might be destroyed. The gospel frees us to be more aware of the devil's presence because we can be less afraid of the devil's power. And so this Christmas, come and behold this baby in a manger for who he truly is. And come and behold this baby in a manger for what he has come to do. He is the son of God who appeared to destroy the works of the devil and to put an end to evil and to the evil one once and for all. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. What hope, Father, you have given us in your word today that though evil surrounds us and though evil is in us, we have no need to fear. For Christ has appeared and his Life, death, and resurrection has resulted in the destruction of the works of the devil. May you continue to free your people from those works, and may you continue to free those who are not yet in Christ from the works of the devil as you give them new life. We pray that this Christmas, we would see the beauty of this gospel diamond and look upon the glory of Christ with fresh faith and wonder. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.